So for the last three years, my wife and I have been having these dinner parties. I've mentioned them a lot on this conversation. We have done 70 of them now. And the, if you haven't been around the table with us, the way that I start every single one, she and I both say a little something. Katie usually mentions something about, because she works at World Wildlife Fund, she works in food waste. Uh, and so she'll say, you know, make sure that, you know, you take as much as you want, but, you know, we have a compost bin and try not to, to uh, take more than you're going to eat. And, but what I usually say first, and she gives me the, the, the first uh, right to speak because she knows that my personality uh, demands it because that's our marriage, uh, is I'll say the following, which is, this is the X number of one that, that we've done. It started in April of 2016. It started because I desperately needed it in my life. I was having, uh, we were doing campaign coverage during the the Trump campaign, and I just, I needed something like that. And I will usually um, mention exactly how much I needed it and how much I needed that week, which is usually a lot. Uh, and that we've done this many of them. And, and I say what is true, which is that it is our favorite thing that we do. The way this thing started was we saw a blog post about how, you know, doing these regular dinners will change your life. And we did. And it has. But more importantly, it's done so many things that we couldn't have anticipated. Uh, One of the things that I could never have anticipated was that friends of mine are now pointing me in the direction of other people who are doing even crazier Uh, experiments with their lives and I thought I was nuts for doing 70 of these dinners but the other day I had a conversation and I wanted to share it and him with you Steve Lee who has a website at lamobilefeast.com which is L-E mobilefeast.com I met him the other day and immediately we decided we had to do this conversation Steve thanks so much for spending some time with me again uh, and this time for At the Table Jared, thanks for having me, and uh, we we have a lot to talk about, and I'm excited to get into it. We have so so much in common, and people will get that, I'm sure, very very quickly. But I started with how I begin my dinners. You have done even more dinners than I have, and you have not been doing any of them in your home, which is where Katie and I do all of ours. So explain to me what the hell you've been up to, and how do you begin yours? because people need to know a little bit about this project. Sure. Uh, Roughly around the same time you and your wife started doing the dinners, uh, I started out in February 2016 to travel around the country, starting from San Diego, and to drive through all 50 states, and obviously flew to Alaska and Hawaii, but drive through the lower 48 and have dinner parties in people's homes that want to host me and a dinner. And so I do all the work and they invite their friends and we have conversations around the table. And very similar to your reasoning, I needed these these conversations too. And it wasn't for my sanity or anything like that. It was for my understanding of how we got to uh, the end of 2015 and then into 2016, where I had been to 44 states before that. But at that point, I just didn't recognize the country that I was hearing in the mainstream media, on TV, and even on the radio, uh, and especially in, in newspaper articles. And I knew a couple of things. I knew that uh, national politics and local politics are very different. And I knew that how people spoke to each other in real life is very different than how we speak to each other online. And living in California, I was seeing mostly the middle of the country through online um, 
um, venues. And so I wanted to go where people lived. I wanted to experience their lives for however many days they would let me. And I wanted to hear people when the guards are down, when the conversations are real and we are just occupying the same space. Um, we're sharing a house for a few days, you know. Um, and so the best way I could do that was to, that I thought was to offer to cook a dinner party in, in their house. And everybody knows what a dinner party is, even if they never held one or hosted one. And if I offer to do all the work, then I get in. And so <laughs> it worked. It's a gimmick, but it worked. And so uh, for three years, 2016, 17, and 2018, I did 259 of these things in all 50 states. You talk about not recognizing the country, and I want to get back into that because for me, of course, I was a White House correspondent. I was following the candidates around. I was mostly following Trump around. I think we were probably seeing from different vantage points some of the same things that were confusing, bewildering, agitating. But I want to talk about the the particulars of this dinner because, again, our mutual friend, Sean, who introduced us, I I love that this is something that you, you've done. Explain a little bit more, before we get into the politics of this, and you talk about letting the guardrails down and getting real. We are having this conversation, I should mention, by the way, in my in-law's house, because you are on the road trip right now. You are traveling past uh, where they live in Maryland, and we decided to just do this in their basement. So I love the fact, if the guardrails aren't down in my in-law's uh, basement on their couch with you know their stuff around, I hope that uh, we can be comfortable here. It certainly, it certainly is for me. Hopefully it is for you, too. But let's talk about these these details, because you mentioned 259 dinners. Logistically already, that's got most people um, in a tizzy, because they can't even imagine. Most people, if they've hosted Thanksgiving, that's a big deal for them. So take people down off the ledge. How did you get into this? Let's talk about, let me, let me put on my reporter hat. What's the who, the why, the how? Uh, so let's start with what, when, and who. What the hell? <laughs> who... And 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 where did you where did you do all this? Because you said you started in San Diego. So how did that how did that plan start out? First of all, I've never cooked for a living. I've never been paid to cook <laughs> anywhere. But I've always hosted dinners at my own house, wherever that might be, and and had people over. And so I'm used to having you know twelve people, twenty people over. And usually when we sit down around the table, it's no more than twelve, really. But um, I'm not stranger to cooking large meals. Now, it's a different story when I don't know the kitchens. You know, I don't know the homes, and I don't know the dietary needs. And so the first conversations I'd have with my hosts uh, is, what kind of food do you like? Um, what kind of food would be a treat for you? And we go from there. Um, and I should also say that I stayed in about, I think, about 230, 37, 38 towns and cities. <laughs> And that means there are more hosts, you know, slightly more hosts than, than the number of cities. And 50% of those people I did not know previously. So they were introduced to me, usually introduced to me by mutual friends uh, or people that said, hey, I have a cousin who lives in Indiana and you should look her up. Or I use uh, about a quarter of overall hosts. I use a website called couchsurfing.com. And it's reserved for places where I have particular interest in, but I can't possibly find anyone that knows anyone. And so uh, in the time frame that I need, and so I would use that as a last resort. And 
I say last resort, but they've yielded some really interesting friendships and, and, you know, people that I I still consider my friends now. Um, So the hosts, 50% of them, I don't know ahead of time. I have no idea who they are. And I'm usually the only stranger at the table. And so there are very few tables that I knew the, the more than half the people. Uh, the rest of the tables, you know, many of them, the host is the only one that I knew before the meal begins. And so I, um, I invite people to sit down and then explain what I'm doing, which is to cook dinner parties in every state and listen to the country, right? listen to stories. And I ask everybody to, uh, to do one thing, one simple thing, which is to answer the question, how did you get here tonight? Now, the question is big, and start with at least who you are, what your interests might be, which is very different than what your job is, and then ask what your interests might be, and then what relationships you might have with the people at the table. And there are two rules. One is the speaker can take as long as he or she wants and go wherever he or she wants with that question or with that answer. And then the other rule is that we can only interrupt the speaker to ask questions. And that second rule is what allows us to share deeply is to dive deep into uh, our own stories and then allow ourselves to inhabit somebody else's story for an extended period of time Um, some people I think the most extreme is some people spoke for just a few minutes uh, and I have maybe I can count on one hand how many people do that but I've had people speak for as long as 30 40 minutes anytime I go to someone's kitchen the thing that I'm most upset about usually is their knives so I want to talk to you about kitchen problems who got drunk and did inappropriate things because i'm sure that happened myself included you come up with this rule and the idea that you want to let people explain how they got there what was it that you were trying to understand what was the mission for you because at some point you decided to do this and i want to get into doubts and how you how you paid for it and all these other but at some point you decided to do this and you said you didn't recognize the country, but like what what was your task and purpose? What was the mission here? I knew I knew that everybody has a story and you know that too. Um, and I think it's the reporter Alex Tizon, who the, the late reporter who who said that everybody has an epic story. That as a reporter it's his job to draw that out of the person. Um, I you know, I, I don't have that grand a purpose, but I knew that everybody at the table has something to say or else they wouldn't come to such a dinner party. Um, and the, the second rule for me did not exist when I started out. I did not know to implement that rule. It became a practical solution for a problem that I saw over and over, which is mostly when couples come to the dinners, one person would speak for the two <laughs> and the other person would would just stay silent and defer. Um, And if I asked for confirmation, the person would shyly say, yes, that's how it happened. Even though I could see that maybe there's a different version of the story. And so I kind of uh, needed to invent the second rule to make sure that I hear from everybody because oftentimes those hours at the table are the only chances I have to speak to many of the dinner guests. So if I don't know their story, if I don't know that they have a story that are worth pursuing or is worth pursuing, then I lose that chance. I lose that that connection. And so I think it's, it's important to say that I don't take notes at the table. Um, this is not where I do the reporting or not where the, the, the stories from my book will come from. 
I treat the tables and I tell the guests that this is a sacred space for us, that it stays here. And so they should feel free to share and not think that there's a writer who's going to take down notes. Um, but if somebody shares something that is that resonates with something I've heard somewhere else or an idea that I've been exploring or a subject that, that speaks to the national conscience, then I will schedule a one-on-one -on -one interview with that person much like this. And that's where the story comes out. And I usually go into those conversations with uh, without any set questions at all, um, and maybe one or two questions, and then I let mutual discoveries guide the course of that conversation. You mentioned the book, and for people who are wondering about information about that, lamobilefeast.com, it's lemobilefeast.com, and this is Steve Lee, who's talking with me right now. Steve, this is a project that's very much in its infancy right now. It's not like people can buy this book. It doesn't exist yet. But you've got, you say you don't take notes during the dinner. You schedule interviews after the fact. You've done 200, almost 260 of these. How much tape are you sitting on? How much, how many notebooks are you sitting on? Like, what is, what form is this book in right now, aside from being a, a jumble of even more convoluted than the neurons that are firing in my brain right now, even more complicated than that. What, what does it look like at the moment? I kept a journal for the trip, and the journal at this point has about 740,000 words. Um, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> and I spent about three months of it after the trip was done between January and April um, distilling the journal onto note cards, uh, three by five cards. And then I've pasted those cards onto uh, butcher paper and they're on the wall right now and there's something like 700 cards probably and then in addition to that I have probably an, uh, 120 hours of interview um, and they're listed by names at this point and I have yet to go through them and and distill them by subjects but uh, if if the listeners are interested um, they can go to the website and there are a couple of blog entries I kept a, a blog during the journey I, I've stopped writing to focus on the book but um, the blog on during the journey has a couple of entries at the end of year one so at the end of 2016 or the beginning of 2017 where I listed 10 topics that preoccupied me then um, that list has changed quite a bit but uh, that should give the reader a, a good idea of what the book will be about. But as far as now that I can see the the whole journey in totality, um, I I can guess, and this is just you know I, I'm almost hesitating to say it, but I would say that I'm going to talk about how we can have conversations with each other to get out of whatever moment, how whatever name we want to describe this, this tribalism or this divisiveness or this inability to understand each other. Um, I'm hoping that the book will elucidate some of the ways we can do that, you know, some of the ways that we can get back to a table, a conversation, perhaps with food, you know, and try to understand and if I can present enough stories that speak to one another, that speak against one another, or that, that speak in concert, then maybe you know, the readers will see ways out of this for his or her own life. There's an entire journalism industry around finding people who have a certain political belief, and it's usually, there's a food connection too, because a lot of these journalists tend to go to like diners or something in the Midwest, and, you know, they find out, you know, why do people still believe X? And the response from a left of center point of view is usually, 
why do we care what those people think? It's kind of the opposite of what you're saying. Uh, maybe we don't want a race war, but we do want to flex the muscle of, hey, this is a majority of the country. We don't believe in you know a lot of this regressive stuff, and we just need to push past it. Demographics is destiny. We're going to move past it. It's going to be majority minority country in a in a generation and that's a good thing and so there's a whole other side of this which and you're talking about the point of view from the the right of center but from the left of center you're right in that there's not conversation across that barrier but there is this welcoming of if not violence then certainly the idea that you would electorally outmatch somebody so my my question is what do you say to people who don't want you to have those conversations? Maybe uh, your liberal friend who says, who cares Who cares what people in the middle of the country think? It's not my job to make them feel more comfortable. They just need to change with the times. And that's something I think we're seeing a lot of that in, the, for example, the Democratic primary for president right now, where people just say, look, we just need to be honest with these people. Some of these jobs are never coming back. Your way of life is going to have to change. And guess what it has for everyone else? It's going to for you, too. So and maybe this was a, a common refrain in 70 or 100 of the dinners you had. I don't know. But I'm hearing you talk about it now. And my thought is, I know there are people listening to this who are going to think, who cares? Why? Why should I? Why should I cater to, literally and figuratively, cater to the needs of someone who disagrees that strongly with me? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question, and I think it's an important one um, because it, it is at the core of the divisiveness that we feel right now. Right, that, that I was talking about earlier. If somebody disagrees with my premise, then they're not worth my time. Right. Um, and I hear a lot of that, but. Why it matters is that we're we're still occupying the same space right now. We're still occupying the same space as in the land and the time and the conversation, right? And I think that you know, I I do have a hope that we can reach an understanding, not agreement. I can disagree with somebody, think their their position is you know, despicable, but I can still understand how they got there, and I understand what their grievances are, what their hurt is, and I can share something that relates to that because I, you know, every one of us has a lot of pain and grieving and, and hurting uh, unless you haven't lived, <laughs> unless you haven't right. acknowledged your emotions. Um, Those and people so, exist too. Right. And so what I hear that, that so much divides us is the pain that, that doesn't get transformed to uh, loving somebody else or transform that to empathizing, but it, it just shoots outward as, or outwardly as, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's pain that's, that just stays pain and you transmit it to somebody else rather than change what it is. If anything at all, it's because we occupy this land together and we're going to be here. Uh, this, these differences are not going to go away for uh, probably another generation. Right. Um, and so I think that it, it, we don't have a choice really you know we can ignore but that means you 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 ignore humans you know you're not just ignoring ideas you're not just ignoring opinions and the other thing i want to say is that no matter how uh, at least in my experiences and and i've listened to over 1900 people share their stories over the course of those 3 years at least in my experience even the people with 
the most disagreeable opinion to me, those opinions do not capture the entire person, right? They're, they're complex. Everybody is complex, and they have other opinions, and they have contradictions, and they have things that, you know, that, that will, for a moment, undo even the most despicable thing you can think of. And I, I'm I'm talking about despicable on both sides, left and right, because I've I've seen and heard some despicable things on coming from the left, supposedly people who are open-minded as well, um, and so you know, there there's no that's not a place to start for me. The, a place to start for me is to understand the human being before us, sitting in front of us, and that's what I wanted to do. That's why I wanted to be in people's homes was to sit in front of people and ask the questions. Um, that lead to more questions, but I think there's something that happens when you're face to face that that can't be replicated when we talk to each other across the internet. The person sitting in front of me right now is Steve Lee. Uh, Le Mobile Feast, le mobilefeast.com is a place where he's been putting some blog posts over the last three four years. He's been uh, traveling around the country, making dinners for people. In some ways, you've been living out a fantasy of mine because you talk about... You have weird fantasies. Well, because you talk about going to people's houses with whom you disagreed on Facebook and talking to them about the shit you disagreed with on Facebook. People can relate to that because we've all had this experience where we're like, well, I thought I knew Jim, but here he is sharing a meme of ridiculous origin or dubious content or whatever and but you actually went to Jim's house knocked on his door and made him food so when you did that what changed because you said despicable the barrier I have found for example in making meals and inviting people into my home in addition to being cheaper than going out to get dinner or drinks in DC it's also a way to actually have a damn conversation but you're going to somebody with with whom you know there's probably at least some grain of sand of of disagreeableness and you're trying to make a pearl out of it how many pearls did you actually get because i'm wondering if you just maybe lost some friends along the way because i certainly we've all probably lost friends in the last couple of years people who just decided not to and you like you were saying facebook friends are people we weren't probably going to be close with anyway but you've I think it really is a relatable fantasy. You've knocked on somebody's door who you saw had a stupid opinion or a bad opinion or a, an opinion different than yours, and you said, you know what, I'm going to make you whatever it is. And by the way, we need to talk about what you actually made, but I'm going to make you food, and we're going to talk about it. And I think that's, I mean, it's it's not a revenge fantasy, but it is a, it is a, it is a it's it's like what there's like a cousin to the revenge fantasy which is like the I want to understand you really bad fantasy. It's not quite as violent, but I think that's your point. Yeah, I I, I want to make sure that the listeners understand and and people that are host that had hosted me and perhaps if they're listening to this that you know when I say that I encounter some despicable opinions, those are very few. We're talking about maybe three or four, right? And and again, they don't represent the whole person. But I, I think it's at this point, it's, it's good to mention that I practice what I'm borrowing from Krista Tippett, who has her own podcast, um, but the concept of generous listening. And in short, it's listening 
to the point where you're surprised by what you're hearing. You know, listening's not to argue. So, you know, she, the way that she would describe it is that we are taught through schooling and most of our lives to uh, listen actively, meaning to pay attention to what the other person says, remain quiet until the other person finishes. But in the meantime, we're formulating our own arguments. We're formulating a rebuttal. We're far formulating uh, persuasion to get the other person to to swing to our side. And let me tell you what I think about that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so what the, what I'm trying to practice in myself, and then, you know, I'll, I'll tell you how I translate it to the table conversation, but what, I'm, what I usually do when I approach these conversations is I want to get to the point where I understand the other person and am surprised by what I'm hearing. And again, not to agree, but to get to the point where I say, I get it. I get why you're where you are. And that means it's the attitude of going into that conversation of not persuading the other person, not communicating any kind of judgment, but to just ask questions. And I was I was um, told recently by uh, a dear friend of mine who said, you know, you ask really brave questions. And what she meant by that was, I asked the question and I let it hang there. And it's uncomfortable, but I let it hang there until the the answer comes. And I have to be ready for whatever answer comes my way. Not the answer I'm looking for, um, but to to go deeper in the direction that the person is leading me on or in. And that is, to me, is generous listening, is to follow the other person's ideas wherever they may lead and no matter how uncomfortable I get. What did you learn while you were doing this? 259 of these dinners, three, four years of travel, generous listening, letting hard questions hang out there, letting people be who they are, feeding them good food, and occasionally staying with them as well. There's a real vulnerability there. What did you take away? Because you went out there with this mission to try to learn something. What did you learn? I learned that it's possible to have these kinds of conversations on a daily basis with strangers. You know, we're, we're not talking about just people we know. And I also think that sometimes it's harder to have these conversations with people we do know because there's such a, a, you know, a lot of baggage and there's a context that we kind of have to, to account for. Um, but these conversations are possible. And if we enter the conversations with a generosity, then I think we gain from it. I mean, I, I, I've gained more from these conversations and these stories than the people who told me those stories. You know, I've, I often receive the feedback of, uh, you know, people exiting the, the dinner or especially the, the interviews, and they say things like, I feel like I just went through therapy. Now, they don't mean what you know, what actual therapy does, which is you know an expert listening to you and then giving you uh, access to your own your own psychosis or, or your thoughts and so on and so forth. But what they mean is is that they were listened to, they yeah. were asked questions, and they they were given time to respond to these questions in ways that you know that drew out even more questions or more answers that they did not anticipate, and it it. More often than not, I had people come to the table and then leave it and and said, you know, I was planning on talking for two minutes. 
And I asked them, so why did you talk for 30 minutes? And they said, because because I didn't feel any judgment. You know, I, I people were asked, people wanted to know, and, and oftentimes people are surprised by what they're saying. And I had one woman in, in Omaha, Nebraska, who after the dinner, because she, she had shared something so personal to a stranger to me, but also to a table that half of them were her close friends. And she said, this is the best sucky night of my life. <laughs> and what, you know, I love the way she said that, because the, put that because it was a discomfort for her. It was a struggle for her to open that deeply and that widely. And yet what she received in return was a lot of comforting, a lot of understanding and more questions to draw her out and no judgment. You know, and I think that we all benefit from that. And and if we return the favor of generously listening to somebody and then show how that's done and then have that return to us, I think we're, we're you know, I don't care what topic we're talking about. I think we, we get somewhere. For the person who's listening to this conversation and is discomforted by the idea of hosting a dinner party or who, like some of the people that you were talking about, has never cooked in their own kitchen or doesn't have service for 12 and would need someone to bring it in a, in a Honda, uh, what's your recommendation on the small scale? Because we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, you think this has implications national politics, but also in in our everyday lives. What's your recommendation for somebody who's hearing us? They've been hearing me talk about this in every stupid podcast episode where I'm like, this changed my life and it was good. Here's another example of someone who did something. What's your message to someone who is still on the fence and is still like, how can I do this? How can I in, embrace this hospitality in my own life? I don't know. Uh, I mean, the, the real answer is I don't know because, you know, unless you have somebody who wants to facilitate something like this, um, it, I think it's tough for anyone to approach it and say, okay, not only do I want to try this, but I need to, I need to initiate it. We're like the midwives of this somehow. Like we're, we're, we're helping birth something unique. Yeah. And I, I think, the, the maybe the most effective thing to do is just to in, invite people over for dinner or to let people I don't know I, I, I really don't have an answer for this um, you know maybe there's a business opportunity out there for somebody <laughs> like me who wants to you know facilitate these things for a fee um, that's not that's not my my game um, but maybe there is there is an opportunity out there for you know and I've Throughout the journey, I, I came across many different types of meals that drew together a community. And so people are doing this all over the country. They're just not taking it on the road. They're doing it within their own community. And so I think that if you have a friend who knows how to cook and you want to have this conversation, maybe you can combine forces and get that friend to cook. Um and then invite. Start by inviting a few people over and spread the word. Before we get to the national politics side of this, which of course is a wheelhouse that I'm very familiar with, I know that you've been cobbling together some thoughts and maybe even some conclusions about that. I want to talk about the actual food because you talked about the variety of things. What did you make for people? And I know that there's 259 answers to this question, but give me a sense because... I can't, we do the same damn thing every time. We do pasta, meatballs, sauce. It's We've gotten it down to a system. I know exactly how much pasta to make. I weigh my meatballs exactly. 
again, I thought I was cool until I met you and you're doing this thing, which is like the Olympic level version of me playing hopscotch. So tell me what you cooked for people. I have about, I'd say 40 or so menus up my sleeve that I can rotate around. Um, Listen to the casual way he said that. You know, like 40 different menus of options. You know, for for those times when you're thinking, oh, I want to I want to have, you know, a dinner party, but I can only narrow it down to two score. No, but, but most of these are just simple meals that I, I would make for, you know, a small gathering. Now, the bigger the bigger dinners, um, those take more work. But I, I also have on the website, I also have a recipe page and I don't cook exclusively those things. In fact, those recipes have enough of an original twist to any of the the dishes that I can say that you're not probably not going to find a similar one online. So I put it up there so that my host can see what I made for them and how they might repeat it. Um, but many of the meals that I cook are not on that recipe page. And again, the conversation always starts with what is a treat for my host? Mm-hmm. And then what dietary needs there are and what what um, preferences there might be and allergies and whatnot and then the the most important thing also is we're going to go to the store i'm going to go to the store i'm going to figure out if i can actually make that meal (laughs) (laughs) and and i i raid the pantry and all that um there were a couple of dinners when i met my host away from the house and actually went shopping and this was this happened in in New York in Plattsburgh, New York, where I met my host at the grocery store, and we were walking to the grocery store, and I asked her questions like, "How many burners do you have? Any pans do you have? Do you have olive oil? Do you have garlic? Do you have an oven that works? Do you have?" And so we were meal planning as we were shopping, as I was looking at the grocery store to give me the menu, um, and. I think this is why I cook and not bake because I don't <laughs> I can I can make stuff up on the fly. Yes, yes. Um and if you learn how to how to adjust, how to uh just make stuff up, then you know, you will easily have 40 things on your menu <laughs> um or in your repertoire. And so uh the meals were were pretty easy and there were many you know, I'd say eight or ten of them that that I repeated because as soon as I mentioned them, people just love them. So a lot of them are Vietnamese, and in the middle of the country, you know, they they just don't get that stuff. And so to have a Vietnamese person cook Vietnamese food in their house, um, they love that. And I I also travel with a, a pantry in my car too, so I had things like fish sauce and soy sauce and and you know, uh, hoisin sauce and you know different things that I know I can't find in the middle of whatever town. Um, and so that gave me an in. And I would never, I should also add, I would never go to a place and cook the signature dish of that region. <laughs> I'm not, that, that is, that's silly to me, right? Um, so I never cooked, I didn't cook grits in the South. I cooked right, right, grits right. in the North and, and to introduce people to something new, uh, something that in their region they couldn't find easily. And I did have a 10 pound bag of grits in my car for a while. Um, yeah, I can't imagine why anyone thought you were running anything. <laughs> right, exactly. And I had different, you know, different bags of rice from North Carolina for a while, and and so on and so forth. Um, and so I try to give people a treat, something that they would probably not be able to get easily where they are, and then I'll adjust it enough so that if they want to do it again, you know, they can in their in their own kitchen. Let's talk about the the prescription then for politics, because, again, something that I talk about when I 
talk at the table, I'm thinking of it not just, of course, around the table, the hospitality angle, but also this bigger question of who is a party to what we're doing? Who is participating? And the big questions right now, you mentioned uh, your your background. It's who belongs in America? Uh, who gets to participate in America? Uh, who matters in America? These are big questions right now. And the 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 people in authority are very much pushing these questions to the center. Uh, I think the president uh, does this very strongly, very intentionally, and to, I would say, deleterious effect, because it certainly has a, an adverse effect on some of the, um, the some of the things that historically have been strengths for the United States. What conclusions or what prescriptions, as you're making these dinners, as you're talking to people, as you're generously listening, and as you're driving away and thinking your own thoughts to yourself, what what have you come to? Because you've learned a lot, that much is clear, and you're clearly a very generous and intelligent person to begin with. Otherwise, I don't even think this project would have come to you. You started with this central problem of, I don't recognize the country anymore. How can we get back to something that you would recognize a little bit better? Yeah, I I, I think I should share my personal story, my, my uh, how my family got to the United States to answer that question. Uh, I was born in Vietnam 40 days before the fall of Saigon. So it was still South Vietnam when I was born. And the United States had withdrawn, um, although the, the embassy, there's a famous documentary, The Last Days in Saigon, I think, uh, about the withdrawal from the embassy. And that was during the, the first 40 days of my life. And then I spent eight years in Vietnam, and then we were able to flee the country as refugees to political refugees to France, where we stayed for two and a half years before coming to America. And so uh, growing up with this having being my third country, and then from high school, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy and then served in the Navy for five years after graduation. These are questions that I answered as a teenager. You know, what is America? How do I become an American? Uh, legally, as well as you know, philosophically and and ethically, and all of that, and then answered it again in a real way of now I'm defending the Constitution. I'm taking an oath to defend the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. And what does that mean? And who might those domestic enemies be? Right. Um, and then exiting the Navy or leaving the Navy, and then answering that as a private citizen. Um, these are questions that are that are big to me that don't have simple answers, um, but what they've allowed me to do these experiences, these various experiences, have allowed me to do is to evaluate the answers I was listening to and hearing from the people that that are trying to answer that for themselves too, um, because in the middle of the country, in in many parts, you know, to be an American, if I look at their lives and their the biographies of their families, what I see is that to be an American is you came and you claimed a piece of land, you homesteaded on it for five years, and you showed that you can, you improve that land, and it's yours. And by virtue of that, you're an American. Um, you didn't have to learn English. Right? <laughs> you can just be there and speak German and Swedish and Norwegian or whatever, and, and you can occupy that land for the next four generations and everybody after that is American. That is very different than my American experience. Um, 
and then the people that that followed us and and come from elsewhere you know there's a and there was an influx of vietnamese and so you know we we had a presence right away but i can imagine people coming from iraq you know the mostly the translators especially people who work for the united states government and and came here from iraq or afghanistan and they don't have a presence here you know and and they don't have a community that that is already established that is a really different answer too. How do they become American, um, and what does America represent to them? So, I think what I've learned, and this is this is something that I, I console myself with, is that the idea of America is changing always. There are certain things that remain the same, however, right, and that is the pursuit of liberty, and the idea that we can self-govern. I'll just stick to those things for now. I mean, that's that's it. Anything that that facilitates that, we can, you know, we 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 might call it desirable. And anything that prevents that, we might question a little bit. Um, but beyond that, I think everything else is adjustable and needs to be adjusted, needs to be questioned again, needs to be reevaluated, redefined, uh, oftentimes through protests, oftentimes through the vote, oftentimes through uh, advocacy, um, and God forbid, violence. You know, America has that history too, right? That we we did solve some, uh, oh, re- not solve, resolve some big differences through a major war, and I certainly don't want that. That has been the history of this country. That has been the life of this country was, here's a very short list of ideals, and we're going to keep working at it, and we're going to keep arguing about it, and we're going to keep butting heads, and hopefully we come out with a better answer for what works now, and then we're going to change that when circumstances change, when demographics change, when ideals change, and the world around us changes. And I think that that's what America is. It feels like people want to make America small, or they want to make it less by circumscribing it more tightly, and I feel like having a, a a simpler answer is 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 better in this case because it it lets us let it evolve which i'm sure uh certainly you know my my illegal italian uh, grandparents uh and 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 your refugee vietnamese parents i mean they we neither of us would be here right now in the original story of america but i mean it's uh it's a pretty cool thing that we get to make food for people and, and try to indulge this value, this virtue of hospitality. And I, I think it does go a long way. And I, I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. And I would encourage people to look at uh, lemobilefeast.com, which is lemobilefeast.com. I know you're also on Facebook and Instagram. Eventually, there's going to be a book. If people subscribe to the blog, uh, they can get more information about when that book is coming. I hope that people who have heard this conversation feel like they are in on the ground floor of something special because when I met Steve, that's exactly how I felt. Uh, and then I said, I have to. The benefit of having this podcast conversation is that we get to do exactly whatever the hell we want. And I said, well, we're definitely going to have this conversation. So my last question for you, Steve Lee, is, and you already talked about this in one direction, but I hope that you have a different one uh, ready because uh, it's a it's a question that I think you're going to be very familiar with, which is, Steve, how did you get here today? <laughs> a, a borrowed car. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, thank you, thank you. End of interview. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm here because uh, 
a couple of important events got me here. One of my dear friends from college retired from the Marine Corps yesterday, and so I, I stayed in the area for that. And then uh, tomorrow uh, is the first Navy football game of the year, and I'm, I'm not a particular football fan, but my class the class of the great class of 1998 has an official tailgater <laughs> and we are now uh we have rental property at the stadium uh, it only took us 21 years to get here and so i'm here to celebrate that um but i'm here because i i again i'm, I'm just curious about the country and i i hope that through this telling of my own story and the stories of the people that i encountered and putting stories next to stories next to stories that the readers can have a better glimpse of what pains us and what gives us hope um, and what what might help us out of this situation through conversation. That's why I'm here. Steve Lee, LamobileFeast.com. Thank you for being here. Thank you for spending some time with me at the table, at my table. I hope one day that uh, we get to cook for each other because I feel like that will be the ultimate, uh, some kind of weird uh, Iron Chef style reality TV show. I would like to do that very much. In the meantime, you Just don't name meatballs. If you if you name meatballs as a challenge dish, there's no way that I'm I'm gonna go against you. Cook seventy times. Four thousand meatballs served. It's basically I'm gonna get like a McDonald's sign out front of the house. Steve, I really appreciate it. Again, we met the other day. I, I immediately said this is a kindred spirit. I hope the people who enjoy this conversation on a regular basis can appreciate exactly why I had to have this conversation with you. This is at the table. I'm Jared Rizzi. A longer version of this conversation will be available for Patreon subscribers. If you're not a patron, uh, it's patreon.com slash Jared Rizzi. Uh, and hopefully you will be able to hear the full conversation with Steve Lee and me. We had a really good one and and uh, probably one of my favorites that uh, that we've been able to have so far for at the table. Thanks so much for joining me and hope you have a great Labor Day weekend. <laughs>